1: lowercase that's shopify.com special offer
0: a verdict against alex jones in the defamation trial out in austin 4.1 million dollars in compensatory damages and 45.2 million dollars in punitive damages we discuss the trial and will explain the verdict also senator lindsey graham continues to fight the subpoenas in front of the special grand jury in Fulton County, this time citing the speech and debate clause as the reason why he can't testify in Bonnie Willis's investigation into 2020 election interference in her state. Also, the Department of Justice files a motion in the federal criminal seditious conspiracy case against terrorist Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the terrorist organization, the Oath Keepers asking the judge to exclude any claims by Rhodes and the Oath Keepers that they were following the lawful orders of Trump. Also, the Department of Justice brings a blockbuster lawsuit against the state of Idaho for its total abortion ban, in which will likely be the first of a number of these lawsuits brought by the DOJ against states that are even preventing women from getting emergency care in emergency rooms with their total abortion bans. Finally, Ivanka and Don Jr. are deposed in connection with New York Attorney General Tish James's civil investigation and the Department of Justice we learn is in contact with Donald Trump's lawyers in connection with the grand jury impaneled in Washington, D.C. investigating election interference and the January 6th insurrection. The most consequential legal news of the week. Ben Micellis joined by Karen Friedman Agnifilo filling in for Michael Popak on this week's blockbuster edition of Legal AF, a wedding edition. In fact, our younger brother Jordy is getting married this week I'm in Pittsburgh where I am taping this but glad to be joined by Karen Friedman Magnifilo. Karen, how are you doing today?
1: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm in upstate New York today where it's going to be close to 100 degrees and almost 100% humidity, so it's it's quite hot.
0: Well, I got to tell you what was incredible and what is the DOJ investigation um, into Trump is heating up as all these investigations are heating up. It was so great the Wednesday episode that uh, you hosted with Donya Perry, former SDNY top federal prosecutor there to have your insight as the top state prosecutor and to have Donya's insight as a top federal prosecutor. And she wrote that Brookings Institute report that laid out the claims against Donald Trump before the January 6th committee convened. So to have both of your perspectives there was incredible. I would tell everybody to listen to it, but thanks for hosting that. It was really great.
1: Yeah, it was great to have her on. I I really thought that was a special episode. And just to get her perspective and her insight was fantastic. And I I have a lot of hope that the DOJ is, is finally moving forward. And hopefully we'll see charges against Trump at some point. And that's what
0: I really like about Legal AF, the show in general, too, is bringing people this perspective from actual prosecutors who handle these types of cases. I mean, at the SDNY, these were the issues that would have come before her. And as a state prosecutor, these are the issues that would be before you. Um, I want to talk about now the verdict against Alex Jones in the defamation trial out of Travis County, which is in Austin, Texas. He was being sued for defamation. He was um, he was already found liable in the first phase of the trial because he didn't turn over documents. He engaged in all those games that we kind of saw him playing during the damages phase. And the judge, after he really didn't produce all of the records and didn't follow the court rules, just said, okay, if you're not going to follow the court rules, you're going to be held responsible. So he was held liable and responsible for defaming families, particularly in Travis County. It was one family, but there's going to be a number of other trials cases that are going to be following this in Connecticut. Um, but this one family alleged that Alex Jones would lie and about that they were um, actors and that this was, you know, all the a, a fake and and that Sandy Hook didn't really happen and that their child didn't really die in the horrible massacre out in Connecticut, out in Newton and horrible, horrible stuff like that. And so a lot of people now were tuning in because this was the damages uh, phase of the trial. And in the damages phase of the trial, it's what it says. The only thing that would be decided is how much money would Alex Jones have to pay this family for defaming them and lying about the Sandy Hook massacre and lying that that they weren't really that their child didn't really die as heinous and horrific as it is to even talk about. So a number of things happened, I mean, you know, that were fairly dramatic, you know, in this damages case, because normally, Karen, in a damages trial, really, you're not litigating the underlying facts of the case, whether someone did something or didn't do something. So people want to think about, you know, the Johnny Depp trial and all of that testimony back and forth about who did what. In a damages phase, though, it's already established that the person was liable and responsible. So the question really was, how much money should you have to pay to the plaintiff because you were already found responsible and liable? But this pretty much, this had more drama than I expected, right? When it turned out that Alex Jones's lawyer purportedly inadvertently turned over all of his text messages for two years to the lawyer for the plaintiff. And remember, Alex Jones had previously claimed that he didn't have he, these text messages, they didn't exist. There was no messages about Sandy Hook, but the lawyer got those text messages at Alex Jones when he was being cross examined. Said, This is your Perry Mason moment, a reference to the TV show, of course, uh, for all our young legal AFers uh, out there, and cross examined Alex Jones about these text messages. It turns out because Alex Jones was also heavily involved in the January 6th insurrection, he was one of the big peddlers of the big lie, a big Trump supporter, um, and all of the Trump election fraud stuff that was taking place on January 6th. The January 6th committee subpoenaed those text messages. So a lot of drama there. And then we get to the verdict. And the verdict was a $4.1 million in compensatory damages and a $45.2 million in punitive damages right there. And so- I want to discuss Karen. First off, before I go in and I could explain the Texas caps and what compensatory damages are cuz I think there's a lot of confusion about that aspect. Let me kind of turn it to you Karen. Just ask you what were your overall thoughts about this trial and then I'll go break down the caps.
1: So, I think it's uh it was sort of very interesting for many reasons this phase of the trial. Um, because, you know, a lot of people don't know that trials are broken up into these various phases, as you suggested. You know, there's the liability phase and then there's the damages phase. And you know that that you you watch TV and you see how trials are portrayed on TV, and everything sort of happens at once. And so, I think this was a very interesting, uh, very interesting phase of the trial because the plaintiff here, the the parents of you know this this kid Jesse Lewis, you know the parents um, Neil Heslin and Scarlett Lewis. They actually got to speak directly to Alex Jones and really tell him what his horrible words meant to them and how it destroyed their life. And I think all the news reports are suggesting that that was a very cathartic. For those parents to be able to face him in court and talk directly to him. And so I thought that was really a powerful part of this trial. And I'm glad that they had an opportunity to talk to him directly and tell him what his, what his words did to their life. Now, of course, I don't think it means anything to him because he's a horrible person. And, you know, he I don't think he cares one, one bit pain and suffering that he causes. But I still think for them, it could have been a very cathartic moment. I mean, this, this mom, um, Jesse's mom, Scarlett Lewis is an extraordinary woman. She's, she's turned this, this tragedy that happened to her family into a, a national movement where she in schools all over, first of all, she's forgiven the shooter. Um, of this crime, which I find extraordinary, you know, how she could do such a thing. But then she's she thinks that, you know, the, the root cause of these school shootings is that we alienate uh, people and we don't teach love and acceptance. And so she's put together this foundation and this program where she goes all over the country and she tries to teach love and acceptance to hope to prevent the next school shooting, to hope that, you know, people aren't bullied in school or, or, you know, won't feel the need to, you know, to do things like, like this and to treat mental illness for what it is, so the fact that she could have, you know, somebody who cares so deeply in talking about these issues, the fact that she'd have the opportunity to face Alec Jones and tell him what he has done, I imagine, was an incredibly powerful uh, moment for her. And so, I'm I'm happy. In addition to the the monetary damages um, that this family's going to receive, that they also was able to actually speak directly to Alex Jones, um, who was sitting in the courtroom, because you don't always get that, right? You don't always get that opportunity. Um, That that had to have proven cathartic in some way you know to to be able to do something in that regard so i found that part of the trial really powerful um the other thing though of course was that sensational perry moment perry mason moment that you talked about you know this accidental turning over a text message and that's a, that's a head scratcher to me first of all you know how does that happen you know what i mean like how do you accidentally turn over things that you that you aren't supposed to or that you're trying not to turn over so of course that makes me wonder was this nefarious in some way you know was this really an accident you know like like you know so and, then, and at first I thought, oh, great, you know, he Alex Jones lied. He said these text messages didn't exist and they actually did exist. So now maybe he can be prosecuted for perjury or contempt of court or something. Uh, but he's, you know, he's slippery enough, of course. And he said something like, you know, oh, you know, I, 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 it's not that I said I didn't have text messages. It's that I searched, you know, you know, first of all, I turned everything over to my lawyers, which we now know because the lawyers turned it over. So now it's no longer his his responsibility because he says, I don't know what my lawyers turned over and didn't turn over. I gave everything over. So, you know, he's going to slip out of that. But the lawyers now, the question is, will they be in trouble for lying and saying, oh, we searched, you know, our emails to see if there was anything about Sandy Hook? uh but but there wasn't anything and so um so that's going to be i think an interesting piece of this to follow to see if they can be if they're going to be held accountable for that um but you know y- y- you wonder was this somehow There, because you know, Alex Jones's entire tactic so far in all of these trials, and there have been other matters where he's defaulted, et cetera. It's all about, you know, it's all about um, trying to, you know. trying to make it so that he's evading being being you know um going to court or somehow he's trying to you know delay things or he's trying to screw things up in court so you know there's a part of me that wonders was this some ploy to show that his lawyers you know like did were they hoping for a mistrial in the middle of the trial to say oh we just got these you know and 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 you know we were supposed to get these before trial, so we must now get an adjournment, or we must have a mistrial. I don't know. Is that their ploy in turning it over, hoping that 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 the that the plaintiff's lawyer would would ask for that rather than instead use it as a Perry, you know, Perry Mason moment? I don't know. I, I I would love to hear what your thoughts are on that, on on whether this was an accident or some kind of ploy again to to just disrupt and delay the trial. Um, you know, I, I don't know. What do you think about that?
0: I don't think it was a ploy to disrupt or delay. And, and I'll explain to you why they were. The reason why Alex Jones defaulted is because he wasn't turning over the records and documents in the underlying case to begin with. And so whether you produce or don't produce those documents in the second phase, the punishment in many ways was already doled out. The punishment was he lost the case as a result of not turning over those records. So turning them over in the second phase, whether you want to call them as a ploy or why would they be inadvertent? You know, they were turning over troves of records because in the second phase, they were trying to prove that Alex Jones was actually not worth a lot of money and they were just trying to do a document dump on them before the punitive damages phase to try to reduce the damages. So I do think generally they were just turning over literally every piece of paper that could possibly exist just to try to kind of swamp the plaintiff's lawyers with all this documentation. And I don't think they cared whether or not they turned over these records or not, because the penalty was already doled out. The penalty was the defaulted judgment and and that they had already lost. Now, arguably, if they're now turning these records over for the first time, you know, there could they argue, well, you know, now now that these records exist, maybe we shouldn't have been found, you know, to be in default. Maybe the appropriate thing was a monetary sanction of, you know, the type of monetary sanction for legal efforts. That Donald Trump was hit with when he wasn't turning over his records in the Tish James civil investigation where the court was finding him each day he didn't turn over the records. But there in New York, the court didn't say, well, we're already finding you liable and responsible for everything you're being potentially accused of. So there's that potential angle. But the penalty was dished out in the sense that he had lost. But you raise an important point that these phases of trial. So I want to geek out a little bit, explain people the various phases of a trial. I'm going to break it down in the most simplistic term. So in a civil trial, and this is a very simplistic way of thinking about it, there would be three phases of of the uh, of the trial, there would be the liability phase, right? Whether the person was liable in a civil case, it's not guilty or not guilty. That's a criminal case. In civil, you are liable, you are responsible for the wrongs that you are being accused of in civil court, or you are not. So there's a liability phase. Then you go to a damages phase. Okay, you've now been held, if you haven't been held responsible, you win the case as the defendant. You don't have to go to the next phase. Then there's the damages phase. How much money, because civil is all about money, it's not a criminal court. It's not about guilt. You don't get in jail in civil cases. How much money do you have to then pay the plaintiff for what you did wrong to the plaintiff? Now, that could be car accidents. It could be defamation. It could be breach of contract. It could be a business dispute. These are all types of civil cases. So, how much money? And then within the damages, there are economic damages and there are non economic damages and economic damages refer to like out of pocket expenses. So in an employment case, it's lost salary in a car accident case or a personal injury case. what well, you didn't show up at work. How much salary did you lose? What were your medical bills? What were your expenses? Those are your out of pocket costs are your economic damages. How much real money did you lose? As a result of the wrong that the defendant committed, then there's non-economic damages, which is emotional distress damages. Pain and suffering is what that's often called. And pain and suffering, there's no formula about how a jury decides pain and suffering, but they hear the facts, they hear the evidence, and they usually ascribe some number to that based on you know, what, how, how this has impacted the plaintiff in the case. And then for specifically egregious cases, you can get to the next phase, which is punitive damages and punitive damages have really nothing to do with how much the plaintiff was hurt, how much like actual damages the plaintiff suffered. Punitive damages are purely to punish the defendant in a case and to deter that conduct again in the future. And so with punitive damages, the courts have held over time, there are kind of constitutional limits of how much punitive damages can be awarded. It's usually a single digit multiple of your underlying damages from the damages phase. So if in a damages case, you were awarded a million dollars, just say it was half a million dollar in economic damages, half a million dollars in non-economic damages, that equals one million dollars. What the Supreme Court has said is under our constitutional limits of basic due process, a defendant really can't get hit or can't be responsible for more than like nine times that at the highest at the constitutional limits. But remember, in our federalist system, there's kind of these constitutional limits, but states can also have their own limits as well. And under this banner of what's called tort reform, which is a major thing that was pushed in the past and continues to be pushed, though, predominantly by Republicans who basically say, look, these trial lawyers are are out of touch and they're just attacking businesses and they're getting these huge verdicts. We need to stop it. There are often caps that are placed, and these are caps that are often placed on the non-economic damages, the pain and suffering style damages, and caps that are on the punitive damages, To reduce it. So, what do these tort reform do in the end? At the end, what tort reform does is it reduces the amount of money plaintiffs can recover in cases when they file lawsuits against defendants. So, using all of that knowledge that we just learned right there, let's talk about the Alex Jones case. So remember, he didn't turn over his records in the first phase of the trial, which meant he was already found responsible. The jury didn't even have to hear about whether Alex Jones defamed or didn't defame these families. He was already found responsible. Defamation was already proven before they even stepped into court because of his conduct. So then we got to the damages phase. And in the damages phase, the jury awarded $4.1 million in what's the compensatory damages. Remember, those are economic and non-economic damages. If you go and you hear the verdict, it was a weird thing because the judge when she was reading the verdict didn't really read what the questions were in the verdict form. The judge just basically said for question 1A the jury finds 50,000 for question 1B the jury finds 75,000 or 500,000 rather than say for economic damages the jury finds this for future economic damages the jury finds this. So it was unclear a little bit when you heard the judge What was the economic damage and the non-economic damage? But given when she was going to 2B and 3, those are usually the non-economic damage questions because usually one is economic. So I think what we could assume is from that $4.1 million compensatory, most of that was non-economic damages, the pain and suffering that the families experienced because of Alex Jones's defamation. So then we go to the punitive damages phase. The jury awarded forty five point two million dollars. Well, the juries are not allowed to know what the caps are. That's for the judge. So if states institute their own caps on punitive damages and lower it, the juries aren't even allowed to know the constitutional cap that I told you, which is usually more than what the state cap is, that nine times number. So the jury has no clue what that was when they awarded forty five point two million. But in Texas, there is a punitive damages cap. And the punitive damages cap is if the whatever the economic damages are, punitive damages can be two times the economic damages plus a maximum of $750,000 for the non-economic damages. So if the jury had awarded Um, uh, two million dollars from that 4.1 million as economic damages. That 45.2 million punitive damages could be reduced to two times the two million or four million. But because here, Karen, it looks like mostly all of the damages were non economic pain and suffering damages, the maximum you can have is a $750,000 cap for the non-economic damages when you're deciding punitive damages. So 4.1 million in compensatory damages representing mostly pain and suffering, plus what likely will be $750,000 for both of the plaintiffs, because that's the cap. So that's the maximum that I for see each. Each is $750,000 per, plan- per plaintiff okay. um, would be the cap for the non-economic damages. And that's because that's a Texas law. That's something that Greg Abbott and the Republicans pushed through. So that forty-five point two, based on the analysis I gave you, will likely be reduced at the end to one point two five million dollars. So I know that's a very wordy explanation, but I think we walk people through there what what it is yeah. and how and how simple. No, I, is. I
1: think I think it's really interesting. I think it's really interesting and important to understand because, you know, when the jury awards 45 million dollars in punitive damages, they're clearly sending a message. Right. That we don't like you, Alex Jones, we want to punish you because that's a lot of money. But it's it's really nothing more than a message, because, as you said, there are these caps. I have a I have a question for you um, in a case like this when you say there was a liability phase to the trial he there really wasn't a liability phase to the trial right there was no trial you know he defaulted correct and the judge found him liable is that correct
0: yeah that's correct so so the a, jury compl- yeah yeah the jury didn't even have to hear right any of that stuff so normally so my
1: my question yeah. is to you in when you in in normal cases where the jury does hear a liability phase, right? They hear an opening argument, they hear the facts, the damages part of the trial is probably limited to this is how much my medical bills were, and et cetera. But in a case like this, where the jury didn't get the opportunity to see a trial, right, to, to prove the case, in the how much of the trial where you talk about what it meant to you and how bad it was, you know, how much of that can you do in the damages phase? Is it like a mini trial within a damages? Is, is it sort of like the 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 main trial that they never got to have in the damages phase of the trial?
0: Usually, no. I mean, usually the damages phase would literally just be kind of speaking, you know, in the case that you gave in the personal injury case you know you would have to talk about though how bad the injury has impacted you 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 will necessarily be talking about the injury you can't ignore that the injury took place when you're explaining how much the the injury hurt me and how much the injury impacted me but you don't have to say look this person was responsible they did it wrong like defamation you have to prove that the statement was false it was done with you know, if in, in certain cases, you know, either negligence or a recklessness or intent, depending on whether you're a public figure, you know, and, and, and the elements of defamation. You don't need to prove that we were defamed. This is what they said. This is how it hurt us. So you are going to be talking about the defamations, the actual act of defamation itself. And normally in a, in a normal trial, it's usually not split up. Usually you'll have the um, liability and damages because they're usually intertwined are talked about together but sometimes in like a really complex case where there's a complex issue on liability and then maybe sometimes the damages is so significant like you'll need 25 experts to talk about the damages or or not even 25 just a lot of experts and it's super costly the judge may bifurcate or you know the case and say okay I want to hear liability first because the jury doesn't need to spend 3 weeks hearing from 20 experts on damages until we establish first liability. Let's set that aside as a separate phase, give the jury some rest, or even potentially bring in a whole nother jury just to hear damages. And so it's interesting, it's complex, but for purposes of the Alex Jones case, um, know that they didn't even have to, they didn't even have to talk about liability at all, which is rare Usually a party doesn't default. They participate in their case. They were just talking about damages. And then the cap on the punitive damages in Texas means that, you know, based on the analysis that I just gave you, because the $4.1 million in compensatory is mostly emotional distress, a.k.a. non-economic damages, th- that means that the 750000 portion of the punitive damages cap would rid of us.
1: Did you hear that somebody donated $8 million in Bitcoin to him during this trial it's to help pay for this? Isn't that disgusting?
0: To Alex Jones?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I read a- that. I read that. I couldn't believe it. Um, I have a, I have one other question for you on this case. Um, so we've heard that the January 6th committee wants to get a hold of these text messages that were uh turned over this trove of text messages um what are your thoughts do you think they can get them uh, if they think if, they
0: can so yeah, can I think he, they can yeah the, look the records should have been turned over uh, they're not privileged records number 1 so they're not like attorney client privileged records and how do i know that well during the actual trial of the alex jones case what the lawyer for the victim's family, what the plaintiff's lawyer said was we had notified Alex Jones, lawyer of the potential inadvertent transmission of these records. Um, and we let them know if they want to go through these records. And maybe there is a privileged claim. Let us know. And they never even responded to us about that. So any privilege claim that these are like lawyer messages, all of that would have been waived when, um, you know, and, and there really isn't any attorney claim, for there's no privilege over these records. I'm sure the January 6th committee has it already. They don't even need to subpoena it. I mean, the plaintiff's lawyer can get, can give these records to anybody. He, he, the plaintiff's lawyer, can publish them publicly right now. I think to the world. This I is don't gonna believe be, there's is, any protection.
1: Yeah, this is going to be. I think. I think these text messages are, are going to be what what the Republicans were hoping. You know, uh, Hunter Biden's laptop would be. You know, it's going to be the gift that keeps on giving. Just to have two years worth of Alex Jones's text messages with everything in there, if it's really what they're purporting it to be. Wow! You know, I saw someone be...
0: mention, and I, I want to talk about this Lindsey Graham and some of the other DOJ efforts. But you know, I, I saw one comment. You know, I think it was on Twitter that basically said, at least Alex Jones saved his text messages compared to, <laughs> you know, the do you know compared to people that we're seeing within uh, the Secret Service, especially with the DOJ investigation there. You know, seeing the you know the Secretary of Homeland Security having his messages deleted. So at least Alex Jones's messages exist. And I saw another comment like, you know, the Republicans were talking about a subset of Hillary Clinton's emails that were deleted. Yet literally the Republicans and Trump deleted every single message ever in existence, you know, and they're the worst deleters. And so the biggest projection artists in the world and speaking about the biggest projection artists, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about these corrupt GOP backers and enablers of Trump, like Senator Lindsey Graham. Karen, can you talk a little bit about what's going on in Fulton County with this grand jury and Senator Lindsey Graham um, is has filed a motion with federal court within Georgia, um, basically invoking the speech and debate clause of the United States Constitution and basically saying members of Congress, uh, senators, Congress persons are immune from having to testify and participate in proceedings under the speech and debate clause. And funny saying That's great if it's speech and debate in the House, but engaging in criminal acts in my state is not speech (laughs) and debate, Senator Lindsey Graham. That's the fight that's going on in Georgia. Senator Lindsey Graham does not want to testify before this grand jury in Fulton County.
1: Yeah, so this is related to, um, as we all know, there's a special grand jury that has been assembled in Fulton County, to in Georgia, by D.A. Fani Willis, to he- receive evidence and write a report. Not, not to decide whether or not charges will be brought, but to it's a special grand jury proceeding that's being over, overseen by a judge, and it's to determine uh, what happened when. Trump called on January 2nd to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and said, find me 11,780 votes. And and that's basically what, what this grand jury is about. And so it turns out that Lindsey Graham and others were also involved in this effort to find these votes. And, and we know that Graham made at least two phone calls to Brad Raffensberger uh, and members of his staff and in connection with this. And so he received... Um, a subpoena that was issued in July, I think July 26, to appear before this special grand jury in Georgia and to testify on August 23rd. Uh, so he went to. He wants to be heard in federal court, though, because he's a federal legislator. Late tour he does not want to have to appear before the lowly Fulton County Superior Court judge who's overseeing the grand jury so he goes to federal court and uh, at least he agreed to um, go to federal court in Atlanta um, not necessarily in South Carolina um, and basically he's claiming uh sovereign immunity he's claiming you know that he that his you know basically that when he made the calls um he was legislatively Fact-finding to help inform his vote on whether or not to certify the election. I mean, that is such BS. I can't even believe that he, that that's that, that doesn't even pass the smell test. Oh, yes, I was just legislatively fact-finding because I wanted to know how to vote uh, you know, on, on whether or not to certify this election. Um, and so, you know, but he's saying that because of that, because I was acting in my capacity as a legislator, uh, the speech and debate clause of Article one of the Constitution applies to me. And and, you know, this this speech and debate clause is is part of the Constitution. And it's it's basically um, it's it basically it was created when the Constitution was created so that that. Um, Members of Congress can do their job, and that they can't, and that they can speak freely when they're uh, debating and talking about legislation, or or trying to determine what to do with legislation, and that that decisions can't be politically motivated, and they can't be sued if they're you know in good faith uh, doing their job. It also applies to their um, to their um, aides if they're if they're acting on their behalf. Um, but, you know, there's just no way to say that this was part of, of that. And, you know, a U.S. the a, a U.S. congressman, uh, Jody Heiss, had a similar objection um, and, and tried to kind of say the same thing. And that was already uh, rejected by a federal judge. So so I think this is going to be I don't I don't think this has any legs. I think this is going to be rejected. uh, And I think he's going to be ordered to testify. And the other thing, by the way, is The speech and debate clause talks about whether or not you can either criminally prosecute a member of Congress or whether they can be sued civilly for their actions. But Fonnie Willis says, I'm not doing either of these, Lindsey Graham. You're just a witness. I'm just subpoenaing you as a witness before the grand jury. So the speech and debate clause doesn't even apply. So that's also interesting and and will be an interesting um, fact to see how that plays out. But I, I think he loses this one.
0: Yeah. To that point, what's the expression? A hit dog will holler. Um And the speech or debate clause of the United States Constitution is found in Article one, Section six, clause one, and in pertinent part states that the United States senators and representatives, quote, shall in all cases except treason, felony and breach of the peace be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses and in going to and returning from the same. And for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. And so you read that and you go, what does that have to do with anything that we just talked about? And I don't disagree with you. It's just one of the things over time that you you, you read the statute itself. And it seems to be pretty clear that what they're talking about is when they're speaking on the House but or they're speaking on the floor of the Senate. But courts over time in our Supreme Court... Over time, in its infinite wisdom, um, has evolved that doctrine. And there was a seminal uh, Supreme Court case called Gravel versus the United States in 1972, which further defined the protected activities and says, insofar as the clause is construed to reach other matters, they must be an integral part of the deliberative and communicative process by which members participate in committee and House proceedings with respect to the consideration and passage or rejection of proposed legislation or with respect to other matters which the Constitution places within the jurisdiction of either house. So that term, the integral part of the deliberative and communicative process is what's often talked about. And that's what Lindsey Graham is saying here, that my conversations with Raffensberger were, quote, integral part of the deliberative and communicative process. And you heard from Karen right there why that's totally and utter bullshit. And I don't think Lindsey Graham is going to win this argument at all. But nonetheless, it is an argument That he's advancing, but also helpful for you to see what the clause was in the Constitution, how it's been interpreted and how it is now being manipulated in a case where Trump and people like Lindsey Graham were trying to overthrow our democracy, trying to overthrow the Constitution that they now claim protects them, which is total and utter crap. But we bring it to your attention here on Legal AF. Moving on to seditious conspiracy case against Stuart Rhodes taking place in federal court in D.C. set for trial end of September. It's been moved back a few times, but looks like the trial will definitely be taking place next month. And so one of the things that takes place as we bring you through the phases of a trial is lots of action, Karen Wright, pre-trial as a prosecutor. Lots of motions are filed to try to decide what evidence can and can't come in Um, based on the rules of evidence and what's filed before a trial takes place are things that are called motion and lemonade, which basically just means motion to exclude, bring to the judge attention. Hey, one of the parties is going to try to introduce things, judge that we think they shouldn't be allowed to introduce because it would be prejudicial. It would corrupt the process. They'd be deceiving the jury. We wouldn't get to, you know, they wouldn't be following the law. And that's what is taking place here with the DOJ saying, look, judge, and it's Judge Meta out in DC, judge, as we head to this trial in September, we want you to know that we think one of the arguments that the Oath Keepers are going to try to make, and Stuart Rhodes in this case, is that they were following the lawful orders of a president. But judge, these weren't lawful orders. These were unlawful orders the president had no right to make these claims make these orders so they can't rely on the fact that trump told them hey you know go you know go and do this which they may try to you know act like they were following the orders of of trump to try to confuse the jury karen what do you think about this
1: you know they made two two arguments uh during this hearing the first of all they also wanted to postpone it again saying there's no way they can get a fair trial there's too much uh too much attention being you know, with the January six hearings that we're not going to be able to get a fair jury, that the jurors are going to be watching this on TV and it's all it's inflamed, et cetera, et cetera. And this judge said, you know, look, the case has already been delayed twice. We've already had uh, 10 trials this year um, uh, involving involving this matter, and we've had no problem finding jurors. So the judge, you can tell, is moving this case along and moving it forward. And as you said, some of the other motions in limine are to exclude was also you know these these uh bogus defenses you know that that they're trying to um that they're trying to assert you know the, the the public authority entrapment defense um which is related to entrapment by estoppel defense uh you know this this sort of honest you know i honestly thought that you know i was doing this in at the at the behest of the government or in cooperation with the government you know i relied on a government official um, you know, it's, it's interesting though, because, you know, you, you, you listen to, to that gentleman, Mr. Ayers, who, who testified before the Jan Six committee and he genuinely relied on, you know, the, he listened to his president and he said, come to the Capitol. So I came to the Capitol. He said, you know, come to, you know, whatever, like, and when he told me to stop, I stopped. And so it it's, On the one hand, I find it fundamentally unfair that all these people who did rely on the president are getting prosecuted but not the president I, and I'll have no problem with it once Trump gets prosecuted but you know the these the, all these people who are saying I relied on him no they don't have that defense because it's not true and they they and so the judge was right to exclude it but it just also underscores to me why Trump absolutely has to be prosecuted for this because he is responsible he is responsible for for making these people believe that you know they could do this and and by and by conspiring with them all to do this. So uh, I think the trial is just moving forward and they're streamlining it and they're not allowing them to make these extraneous arguments that have no place in the, tr- you know, don't, don't belong in this trial. And, you know, we'll see, hopefully, hopefully we'll have another four convictions after, after these guys go to trial. Yeah, and just think
0: about it in normal times, nothing's normal anymore. Trying A group of terrorists who tried to overthrow our government with seditious conspiracy would be one of the most high profile uh, resource intensive aspects of what our Justice Department would do and focus on. That case in the swing of things with all the things our Justice Department has to do now is kind of a footnote. I mean, and it just goes to show you really the expansive nature of Merrick Garland's investigations and Merrick Garland's work. And, you know, someone who can chew gum and, and walk and talk and prosecute at the same time, I mean, at the same time, Merrick Garland and the DOJ are in court with the Oath Keepers. Like, let's not forget the multifaceted nature of what they're doing. They have 800 other cases that are taking place from January 6th, about 400 of which they've already um got convictions on either have been sentenced or awaiting sentence the other 400 are in the queue that they will be prosecuting the same time merrick garland this week gives a press conference about brianna taylor and that he's going and that the doj is prosecuting the officers in louisville kentucky who are involved in that unlawful um uh, search and seizure and killing and murder of of brianna taylor there since there was no accountability at the state level you have the federal government doing that and stepping in and making sure there's accountability there. But Merrick Garland always says no one is above the law. And at the same time, you have Merrick Garland and the DOJ doing things like filing critical and vital federal lawsuits against states like the state in Ida- like Idaho that has a total abortion ban. Um, which that was a
1: great segue, by the way.
0: I I, I I try, but it's, it's true. You know, people have to understand the breadth of what Merrick Garland is doing and you can see it when you really discuss it in, in those terms and you have them really enforcing federal law. And this is, this is so sad. You think about it, like in Idaho, the way the Idaho total abortion ban is being applied, women who show up at the emergency room who could die, are being turned away if the standard of care required by the doctor would be an abortion in a situation like that, because the doctor says, I'm going to get criminally prosecuted if I follow the standard of care. You show up and require emergency care in the form of an abortion. Um, So we're not going to perform it, leading a woman to die or putting a woman's health and life in serious, serious jeopardy. And so that's what this lawsuit is, this Department of Justice lawsuit is all about that I want to talk about it. But before talking about it, I do want to mention that this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really, really simple. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients it needs to thrive. Whether it's busy schedules, poor sleep, exercise, the environment, work stress, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, it can leave us deficient in key nutritional areas. AG1 by Athletic Greens the category leading superfood product brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everybody keeping up with the research knowing what to do and taking a bunch of pills in capital and capsules is hard on the stomach and hard to keep up with i know that's what was really the issue for me i would take all of these gummies i would take these you know the pills i would take the drinks and the shakes i didn't really know what i was doing it was not effective But with AG1, it was just one tasty scoop of AG1. It contained 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral probiotic green superfood blend and more in one convenient daily serving. It's a special blend of high quality bioavailable ingredients and a scoop of AG1 works together to fill those nutritional gaps in your diet, support energy and focus aid with gut health and digestion and support a healthy immune system. And it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. It's about three bucks a day um, when you actually break it down, which is one of the things that I like about it as well. And it's made a monumental difference in my life. And I always hear from legal AFers and, Midas Mighty members, everyone who listens to the pod say what a great, great, great product this is that they use and it has changed their lives and made their lives so much better as well. And I think it tastes great and it's lifestyle friendly. So whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, this is great for you. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything. So join this Legal AF movement. Join the movement of the Midas Mighty of Athletes, Life Leads, moms, and dads, and get that nutritional product, AG1, that you need that will get you those nutrients in the simplest manner possible. It's essential nutrition. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free- one year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash legalaf today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash legalaf. Get that free one year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. Athleticgreens.com slash legal AF. Take control of your health and give AG1 a try. Karen, so let's talk about this case out and that the doj just filed i mean pretty horrific that the doj even has to file it in the first place um you know merrick garland upon filing it uh gave a press conference uh and said in the days since the dobbs decision there's been widespread reports of delays and denials of treatment to pregnant pregnant women experienced medical emergencies Today, the Justice Department's message is clear. It does not matter what state a hospital subject to the federal law EMTALA, EMTALA operates in. If a patient comes into the emergency room with medical emergency jeopardizing the patient's life or health, the hospital must provide the treatment necessary to stabilize the patient. And then the Idaho uh, governor, Republican Brad Little, he comes out and justifies in a statement not allowing women to use the emergency room in these situations and says our nation's highest court returned the issue of abortion to the states to regulate end of story and accused the justice department of interfering with idaho's quote pro-life stance it doesn't seem very pro-life to be allowing the women who show up to the emergency room to to die when they need a standard of care in the medical profession.
1: So the, I think this this bears uh, kind of diving into in a little bit of detail because there are people who will say yes, but the Idaho law. Does provide for abortion in two instances. Number one, when it's required to save the woman's life, and number two, in cases where there's incest, and they reported it to uh, some kind of authority, some kind of government authority, and you have to show proof, like you know, show your piece of paper that you reported it. And so, for the so so, there's a lot of people who who will say say, come on all of you people on the left you're you're exaggerating Merrick Garland's exaggerating this does provide this clearly has an exception for saving a woman's life and i think for because there is that view it's quite misleading and i think it's important that we dive into this in uh in into some detail so the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act that you talk about uh, is is basically says any hospital that receives Medicare funds must provide um, necessary treatment to a patient who arrives uh, in the emergency room with an emergency. And sometimes, you know, there, there's th- basically there's two sections to that. There's saving someone's life, but there's also medically stabilizing someone. So you could arrive in a to an an emergency room. And um, the abortion might not be necessary at that moment to save the woman's life, but it might become necessary to stabilize her so she doesn't have lifelong medical consequences because they don't... They don't perform this abortion now. I'm not a doctor, obviously, and so I I, I can't really talk in detail about what are the various medical uh, conditions that you could come into the emergency room with and what the health consequences could be. But you can imagine a scenario where a woman is having a, an ectopic pregnancy. You know where where the where the um, where the embryo is implanted outside the womb or where there is preeclampsia or, you know, whether they're having a miscarriage and and there's some kind of septic, you know, infection or a hemorrhage or something. And, you know, the wo- and, and in that moment, the woman's not going to die, but, you know, she could go into liver failure or she could go into septic shock or, you know, she could, uh, who knows, like there could be so many complications that happen that could have Lifelong consequences, health consequences on her and on the baby. And then maybe later, you know, her life's in danger, and then they can perform the abortion. But at that point, it's too late because they already have these severe permanent medical problems that have happened to, you know, to her. so so it doesn't allow a doctor to treat them and to stabilize them uh, in that situation. The other problem with this law that I see, is it it places this as an affirmative defense, and so I think that is critical to why this uh, this lawsuit by Merrick Garland has to is so important and is so powerful. So, so let me just describe what an affirmative defense is. So this law makes it a criminal felony to perform an abortion. Period. Full stop any abortion so it's it's a crim it's a crime in the state of idaho and so and so what happens is if this is allowed to go into effect on august 25th is that any doctor who performs any abortion for any reason will be criminally prosecuted will be arrested and prosecuted and then it is on them it is their burden to show so if you know if you know in a criminal prosecution the burden relies wholly on the the government. So the burden of proof is 100% on the prosecution. A defendant can sit there at the table, be prosecuted, and never utter a word. They don't have to give an opening. They don't have to present evidence. They don't have to testify against them. They don't have to give a summation. They don't have to do anything. And they can still be found not guilty, because if the prosecution doesn't meet their burden to prove that case beyond a reasonable doubt, the only time in the law, in criminal prosecution, that there is a burden on the defense is when there are these things called affirmative defenses. So, and that's what this does. This puts an affirmative defense on every doctor who performs an abortion to sit at a trial and to have to prove that by a preponderance of the evidence that they were somehow allowed to perform this abortion so that they were justified. So it just a common affirmative defense that everyone's heard of is self-defense. Right. So I shot someone. I get prosecuted, You know, so I get prosecuted if i say yes but i was allowed to you know because they were coming at me and they were they had a gun pointed at me that's an affirmative defense that i have to now prove that i was justified to do that so every single time a doctor um, performs an abortion even to save someone's life even in the case of incest they can and will be prosecuted they will sit at a table as a criminal defendant and they will have to prove they will have to provide evidence that that they were that they were um that the woman's life was in danger and the, and i don't know of any other time where a doctor has to sit there and talk to 12 jurors who aren't doctors and tell them, have to justify to them, no, her life was in danger. No, it wasn't in danger. I made a mistake. I didn't make a mistake. What doctor is ever going to make that call? What doctor's ever going to put themselves in that position? And think about this. The irony of all of this is, let's say the doctor say, I'm not going to make that call. I don't want to risk it. What if I'm wrong? What if, you know, what if my medical opinion is not perfect and I was wrong, so I'm not going to do it? And then She dies or something bad happens. Now the doctor is going to be sued for malpractice for not doing it. I mean, it just puts doctors in this horrible position. This is a terrible law and it's, it's, it's going to chill. It's going to basically put many, 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 many people's lives in danger. And so it's a very important case. And thank God um, the justice department is bringing it.
0: And Karen, when we see a lot of state legislatures, having these discussions and the radical right extremist usually male um republicans who are talking about these bills that have similar implications in import i was watching some of the debate recently that was taking place in indiana for example and you know you'd have uh women legislatures democratic women legislators come up and ask the males questions where it was obvious that at the most basic level um no science no understanding of female anatomy like no understanding whatsoever was even being thought through the process other than a man wanting to control the women and when kind of cross-examined during this debate you know, the men, you know the men would say these horrific things like, "Well, we all have to die sometime, so sorry, you know, and just responses like that, and you would go, "What in the world is going on here?" But I am at least somewhat encouraged by what took place in of all places, Kansas, um where there was a vote that was taking place whether or not to there's a constitutional right in Kansas to have an abortion. And one of the things that the right wing wanted to have was an amendment to the Constitution um, to remove that constitutional right because they wanted to ban it there. And overwhelmingly, when this was put to the voters, put to the people um, by almost double by double digits, Kansas voters on a bipartisan basis said government just get out of our bodies, like get out of our bedrooms, like get out of our medical offices. <laughs> Just stay out. We we can decide with our doctors. I don't need people like Greg Abbott. I don't need people like Ron DeSantis making the decision about whether it's a medical emergency for me. I'm going to make that decision out of the family and with the doctor is what those voters resoundingly said in, in Kansas. So if you put these votes actually to the people, They will overwhelmingly do it in Kansas. It's one of the ultimate ironies of what the state's rights argument ultimately is, is that, well, if we take it away as a federal right and we make it a state's right, the will of the people is going to be reflected. But quite the contrary, the will of the people is not being reflected. The will of the people overwhelmingly is what Roe v. Wade was, not at all what the states and these radical right extremist states are ultimately doing. And then finally, Karen just wanted to talk about What's going on in uh, in your state of New York? Um, You had Ivanka and Don Jr. were deposed in uh, in New York. Um, And we now learn that the DOJ is also in contact with Trump's lawyers. They're heating up their investigation there. What can you tell us about some of the intensifying investigations, both in New York with Ivanka and Don Jr. and with uh, the federal level?
1: Yeah, well, it's clear it's they're all heating up and, you know, it's it's um, CNN reported that uh, that the New York Attorney General Tish James, who has both a civil and a criminal related criminal case going uh, investigation going um, that uh, that. Ivanka and Don Jr. actually sat for depositions. Uh, I think Ivanka was on Wednesday of this week and Don Jr. was on Thursday. You know, they they were fighting about it for months and months and months, but they finally did. And, and they were also reporting that unlike Eric, um, the third son, they didn't take the fifth. Um, also, Alan Weisselberg, who I, I think is the um, Chief Operating Officer of the Trump Org, he took the fifth as well, but Ivanka and Don Jr. didn't. So I found that a little head scratching, you know, I wonder what they said. And, uh, and, and, and why would some of them take the fifth and 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 others not. Is it because uh, Eric's guilty of of something, and so he's taking the fifth and um or he he believes he is, but Ivanka and Don Jr don't think they are, or is it some kind of strategic we have nothing to hide. We did nothing wrong? Um, new tactic that the that the um, that the trumps are starting to employ. So I, I think it's sort of interesting and and we'll see where where this leads and and whether other information leaks out about about what they said and and um, and what went on. But you know, look in a civil case uh, which is different than a criminal case, a jury can draw an adverse inference when someone takes the fifth. So maybe that's the strategic difference and why there's we're saying we have nothing to hide you know i i don't know what 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 are your thoughts on on it that they're suddenly now you know suddenly cooperating
0: they think they're smarter than they are number one and then number two they both want to run for political office Mm -hmm. and they both have and i don't think eric does so i think they both (laughs) realize that taking the fifth would prevent them from entering you know whatever Uh, ivanka from entering good society again or whatever she wants to do and then I think Don Jr. wants to run and knows that pleading the fifth would, you know, be be a death knell for him because he's been out there saying if you plead the fifth, that means you're guilty. Like he's actually has statements out there where he's where he said words to those effect. And then we also learn, Karen, that the feds are in touch. Also, a, a, a report that the feds are in touch with Trump's lawyers. And the out of the grand, you know, out of the activity taking place in the grand jury in uh, Washington D.C., it seems very clear that. Trump is clearly a target of the investigation, and they are moving in the direction of indictment. Although we'll see what happens, but every step they're taking, um, and you know, even recently calling, you know, uh, calling um, Philbin, all of the top, you know, the the deputy counsel, the top counsel, all the main law. Lo- you don't get much more aggressive as a DOJ than bringing in the person's top lawyers to testify, um, and that and then that was this week alone, Cipollone and Philbin. and then the week before that, you had Vice Prince, Vice uh, President, Vice President Pence's chief of staff and top lawyer. So they're moving in that direction.
1: They're moving in that direction. I think it's ulti- ultimately going to come down to. Does Merrick Garland want to go down in history as prosecute, being the first attorney general, you know, Merrick Garland and Joe Biden as the first uh, Department of Justice to um, prosecute, criminally prosecute a former president? And that's, I think, the big question that they're wrestling with. I think that uh, Joe Biden you know, came to the table initially saying, you know, let's all, let's heal the country. You know, he's very conciliatory. And I think he was, um, you know, he brought Merrick Garland as his um, as his attorney general, who I think feels very similarly and was very, uh, hesitant and reticent to bring a criminal invest, to even begin a criminal investigation into Trump, uh, despite despite the mountains of evidence that was that was out there that he is guilty of um, so many uh, you know so many federal crimes related to um, January six and trying to um, disrupt the democratic process. But I think the January six committee really gets significant credit for putting for interviewing over a thousand people gathering the necessary evidence doing the work i mean really the the hours and hours and hours and hours of work that was put into investigating what happened uh really something that the department of justice should have been doing but you know neither here nor there you know they really they really put in the work to do this um significant investigation and then to then to present it to the American people in a way that is so clear that a crime has occurred, that Trump is responsible, and this is the evidence uh, that you would need to bring a criminal prosecution against him. And and so they've just done this painstaking, methodical presentation to not only change the hearts and minds of, of the country, but to also... Uh, at this point, it would be shaming the Department of Justice if they do nothing, because it can't be clearer that somebody, uh, Trump, needs to be held accountable, and I say I, not just Trump, but others as well, uh, need to be held responsible um, for you know for what they did and, and these actions on 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 January sixth. So so that's what's happening. Hopefully, uh, Biden and Garland um, will you know will absolutely. Um, do what it takes, and 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 yes, okay. Be the first to do it. I know it's a big step, but I think it's the right thing to do. I think it has to happen.
0: I think it will happen, but we will keep everyone updated. Lots of uh, big news developments certainly on the horizon on future legal AFs. But so great to have you, Karen, on this wedding weekend for Jordy Mycellus. The Midas brother is getting married. Jordy Mycellus wedding, and I always love having you. Fill in, Karen, for Michael Popak and love your midweek show that you host. It's great having you as a host there and I'm looking forward to more of those midweeks. Thanks for joining me this weekend.
1: Thanks for having me. Make sure you send pictures. I want to see everybody. I want to see the brothers all dressed up.
0: We will absolutely send pictures and, and want to thank everybody. And send,
1: yeah, send Jordy my love and everybody else's love. I'm sure everybody who's a huge, huge fan of the Brothers podcast and, you know, of this show are just absolutely so thrilled for him. And so congrats to you and your family and to Jordy. And um, it's just really, I, I love weddings and I love love. So it's, I love things like that. I'm really excited for you guys.
0: Thanks, Karen. And thank you to the Midas Mighty. Thanks, everybody, for listening and watching. We'll see you next time on Legal AF. Oh, special thanks to our sponsor, Athletic Greens. You should definitely go and check out athleticgreens.com slash legal AF. That's athleticgreens.com slash legal AF. See you next time on Legal AF by Midas Touch. Shout out to the Midas Mighty.